We're turning in the Word of God this morning to Jonah chapter 1 and to verse number 17. John, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We have before us the familiar account of Jonah, and in Jonah's life we discover a man who was disobedient to the call and to the command of God. He was a prophet of God, he was a servant of the Lord, and instead of doing as he was told, he defied God and did the opposite. God came to him with a message that he is to go to Nineveh, to go and to preach to the people there that judgment was coming, and he decided that he was not going to do this. Instead, we find that he does the opposite, and he goes in the opposite direction. And throughout this first chapter, you see something of Jonah descending into sin. And it comes out, as you see, how he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into a ship, and then he goes down into the bowels of the ship in order to go to sleep. And then later on, we will discover how he is then thrown overboard and ends up down in the sea or in the ocean. Here he is, a man that is trying to run from God. And the picture that you have here is that when we go away from God and when we're running away from God, it only leads downwards, down into the depths, down into the depths of sin and rebellion. And it's quite interesting that whilst this storm rages in Jonah chapter 1, that Jonah here is so hardened in his heart and so hardened to the operations of God that he actually sleeps, despite the peril that they are all in. So Jonah has run away from God, and he has gone down far from where God is. But another feature that comes out of this first chapter is to do with the omnipresence of God. And by that I mean that God is everywhere. That despite Jonah trying his hardest to run from the presence of God and try to run as far away from God as he could, we find that God is there. And in fact, God is here, in a sense, pursuing him. And so whilst Jonah thinks he can escape, there's nowhere that he can run to. Psalm 139 illustrates this point very clearly, because in that psalm it tells us if we made our bed in heaven, if we were to go there, God is there. And even if we were to go down into the depths of hell, God is there as well. And so Jonah, with his sin, tries to run, but there was nowhere that he could run to or run from. The third aspect that we have in this chapter is the way in which men will try their hardest to save themselves. We find that these hardened mariners that you read about in verse 5, they do everything that they can to try and rescue their situation. 
This is a storm like no other. We read in verse 4 how a great wind has risen up. We find that there is a mighty tempest in the sea, and the ship that they are in is likely to be broken up. There are parallels here with uh, the parable, uh, the, the miracle that Jesus performed on Lake Galilee when the disciples and Jesus crossed over and a, a great storm arose there. But here they do everything. They're fearful, these are hardened sailors, they know what a storm is, but this is like nothing else that they have seen. And so the first thing we discover is that they, uh, they cry, every man to their God, every little trinket and deity that they may have had on the ship, every little good luck charm that they may have contact with, they tried everything. And then they threw everything that they had that could be thrown overboard in order to lighten the ship. Presumably they are merchants going from one port to the other. And so if they throw everything overboard, then they're going to have not the wares to sell in the next port that they come to. And so there'll be a financial implication here. And so they're throwing everything overboard in order that they might survive. And then we discover that whilst all this is going on, Jonah is sleeping. Later on, we find that Jonah tells them that they need to throw him overboard, and instead of doing that, they try even harder to try and row to safety and to row to land. The more that they tried to save themselves, the more peril they were in. And when we think about society, when we think about our own hearts, when we think about this world, we find that people are trying very hard and very desperately to save themselves. And so that may be through following a religion. It may be through trying to do good works. And they think that the more that they do, the more uh, harder they work, then that will earn them brownie points and tokens to get to heaven. But the problem is, is that we cannot save ourselves. These men, they could not save themselves. They were at the mercy of God. Martin Luther, he was a man who lived in the 1500s, and he was very concerned about the judgment of God and trying to please God. And we discover in his life that he tried everything. He tried to live a monastic life. He tried hurting himself, hoping that through the, uh, the, the destruction of the flesh that he might somehow appease the wrath of God. But the more he tried, the more desperate he became. And instead of having any kind of peace, he became more and more depressed. So we're going to look at this passage and pick up the, the account that we have from verse 11 down to verse 17. Now it's interesting that if you look back to Matthew chapter 12 and to verse 38 and following, how the Lord Jesus Christ is there speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and they are requesting signs. They're requesting, as it were, evidence of the power of Jesus as to whether or not those signs would testify to his ability. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives these uh, scribes and Pharisees two signs, one of which is here, 
and the other is concerning uh, the Queen of Sheba. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about this encounter that we have in Jonah as historical fact. He doesn't say to uh, those that were there, you remember the myth that we have in the Old Testament. He doesn't say any of that. It is truth that is being declared and explained. And so you may hear people today say, well, this is nothing more than a myth or a fantasy, a made-up story. But this is an account that actually happened and has been preserved in the Word of God for us. But in verse 11 to verse 16 we find that there is an awful dilemma for these seamen. Jonah, when asked the question by the sailors as to what needs to be done to make the sea calm, he was said, he replied to them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Literally, throw me overboard. In a sense, Jonah was wanting to sacrifice himself. And we see that in this narrative, the sailors don't want this, they're not happy with it, they're not comfortable with it, because they pray in verse 14 that the blood of this man will not be upon their hands. So they are concerned with what they are going to have to do. But what does Jonah tell them? why does Jonah tell them to do this? Well, does he recognise that he's now done wrong and this is the way to save them, or does he see it as the consequence of his downward spiral into sin? Well, I would suggest that he doesn't pray to God, he doesn't call out to God, but he recognises he's gone so far from God that the only option opened to him is to be thrown into the sea. There was no other way out. After all, he had sinned and offended the holy God. Judgment was upon him and death was his end. Again, there's no hint of faith no confidence in the deliverance of God, there's no prospect whatsoever that other than his drowning would be the outcome. Well, when we think about Jonah here, perhaps he thought, well, if I sacrifice myself, others will be saved. Well, there may be some truth in that. But the only outcome for Jonah is his death. When we think about our life, when we think about our situation, when we think about what we have done and how we live, we find that we have sinned against God, we have rebelled against God. And the consequence for that sin is judgment. And the consequence and the result of that judgment will be our death. And Jonah, he has, can have no, no qualms about it. He can't sort of argue and say this isn't fair because he has done everything to disobey and to defy his God. And when we think about our life's end, if we're not saved, then death is the reasonable judgment that we should receive because of our continual sin, our continual defiance, and our continual disobedience against the Lord. So in verse 16, 
we find that Jonah has been taken up. He's been thrown overboard. And then a miraculous calm comes upon the ocean. And it had quite an impact upon these sailors. They weren't now giving thanks to their little trinkets and their idols and their good luck charms, but it caused them to fear God and they offered sacrifices and made vows. Well, if this was the end, then these sailors have been saved and what a wonderful outcome that was. But it is not the end because the account continues in verse 17 and will continue right through to the end of chapter 4. And in verse 17, we discover how the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So on one hand, the judgment of God is pursuing Jonah, and yet at the same time, the graciousness of God and the mercy of God is pursuing Jonah. Psalm 85 and verse 10 tells us this, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And the way in which Jonah has been troubled and caused to face this situation will have a profound effect upon his life and then upon his deliverance. If you're a Christian here this morning, think back to when you were saved and think about the Lord's dealings in your life that led up to that situation. How often has it been the case whereby we've been troubled, we've been anxious, uh, calamities have arisen in our life, difficulties have come, the foundations of our life have been shaken in some way, and in a sense we come to ourselves. We, we don't have peace, we can't make ourselves better, and there's nothing that we in of ourselves can accomplish. Do you remember the prodigal son? He thought he had everything. He went and took his inheritance and went and lived in a manner which was displeasing to his father, but as far as he was concerned, he was living the high life. And then trouble came. It wasn't when he was having the plenty and the ease and the, uh, the, the, the blessings of life that caused him to consider his father in his father's house, but when he found himself in the pigsty, eating the food the pigs were being given to eat. He came to an end of himself. And there we read about him coming to his senses. So the Lord will often come and bring a disturbance in our life to cause us to consider him, to, consult, to consider our standing before him and to think about eternity and the consequence of our sins. Now, we do have to be a bit careful in thinking that if we have a difficult life, then we're going to have a secure eternity. Or if you think about people who have plenty in this life, well, they've got all that they need to have now, uh, they won't have it in the life to come. That's not how it works. But the Lord will often use these calamities in life to bring people to himself. And so God prepares a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
What does this show us? Firstly, it shows us that God is gracious. God is gracious. Jonah, on one hand, has done everything possible to disobey and to oppose God and his commands. The judgment that he faced was appropriate on account of his continued sin and rebellion. And everything Jonah does is to merit what is happening to him. But what he doesn't deserve is this rescue plan, this great fish being prepared by God for his salvation. And so when we think about our own condition, our own life, if we have been saved, it is always an act of God's grace. It is not that we somehow have earned it or somehow deserved it. It is always undeserved. And the more that we progress in our Christian life, if we look back to what we are like before salvation without Christ, and the more that we see our sin within us, the more sinful we will see that we actually are. Now, if we were to go and into a house that hasn't been cleaned for 10 years, and you went in with a little match, you would perhaps look around and you think, well, it doesn't look too bad. You then go in with floodlights and torches and put the main lights on and open the curtains, and you have more light, then you will discover more problems that are in that house. And the same thing is with us. When the Lord gives us light, we begin to see, and the more light that we have, the more areas in our lives that we see are not right before God and how more sinful sin is than we perhaps fully appreciate it. And so when we think about what God has done for us in sending his son, it is always an act of grace. It is a gracious intervention of God. John Kent writes, On such love my soul still ponder, love so great, so rich, so free, Say, while lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? Hallelujah! Grace shall reign eternally. So here we find the unmerited favour of God being given to Jonah in that God prepares this great fish for his deliverance. The second thing that we discover in this intervention that God makes with Jonah is the surprising means that he uses or he employs. We don't see anywhere else in the Word of God an account of a man being saved from drowning by him or her being eaten or swallowed by a large fish. Now, perhaps things like pictures and images that we see in the world and have been used by filmmakers and artists to depict things out of the Bible aren't always helpful. In fact, they are seldom helpful because they can distort our view and they can limit our view. I don't know whether you've ever watched the Disney film Pinocchio, but eventually uh, the Pinocchio's father, the toy maker, ends up being swallowed by a fish. And Pinocchio, the, the little boy that tells lies and his nose grows longer, he ends up inside this large fish as well. And when you see that cartoon, there is... Uh, the father, there's Pinocchio sitting, there's a, a fire where they're eating something, and it's quite a large room. It doesn't look particularly pleasant, but 
it doesn't give the idea of what it would be like to truly be in the digestive tract of a whale. You read later on how that Jonah has uh, weeds in his hair, seaweeds. We read later in verse 10 of chapter 2 that God would cause a fish to spew up Jonah onto the seashore, and so it would not have been the kind of place that we might picture with some of those cartoons. And so God goes to a surprising means in order to save him. However, in a remarkable way, this surprising salvation comes to Jonah. One moment he's descending through the depths, going to his imminent death, and the next moment he's swallowed by this great fish. And so the Lord comes and meets with him. When we think about the gospel coming to us, and when we think about how the Lord saves us, it is surprising when we step back and consider it as to the means by which God has done this. It is surprising that God would love this world so much that he would give his only begotten son. That is what is surprising, that God would even bother to do that. Why would God do this? Because he's a God of love and a God of mercy. And so when we think about the mercies of God, it is surprising the Lord would have favour for his people. To think that we could be redeemed by the precious blood of his Son is a marvel that eternity will not fully convey. The third thing to notice about the salvation that occurs in the ocean is the suitability of this salvation for Jonah. Jonah is being dealt with and rescued from where he has sunk to. It could have been the Lord sent an eagle to come and to save Jonah, but that would be no good because Jonah is now in the water and he is drowning fast. He needed to be saved where he was. He needed to be saved at the point that his sin had taken him. He can't save himself to get back to the surface and then be rescued by some other means. He needed a saviour that would come and descend to where he found himself. And this is what we find. The Lord provides a suitable fish to come and to swallow him up. It had to be a large fish to come and swallow him up. It would be no good sending a goldfish to come and rescue him because that would have been inadequate. But what God had provided was suitable. Again, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a suitable saviour. He doesn't try and rescue from afar and tell people, well, once you have made yourself better, once you've lifted yourself up, then you can have mercy being applied to you. No, we discover that he comes, and he comes right into the depths in order to save us. He goes and rescues us from where we actually find ourselves in. He doesn't leave us there, because he will then lift us up and bringing us, bring us to himself. And so the Lord Jesus Christ he is a suitable saviour. He has come and he rescues us 
and his salvation brings that salvation that is needed. The fourth thing to notice about this amazing grace that occurs is how this salvation is specific. A few years ago, an aircraft set off and was lost in the Indian Ocean, MH370. To this date, nobody knows why it came down or where it came down. Not so long ago, there was an expedition down to the Titanic, and that submersible that went down imploded, all lives were lost. But it took a huge amount of effort and technology to locate on the seabed where that had occurred and to find any kind of debris. Now, they were able to pinpoint where to go. They had some idea of where to go because uh, they knew where the Titanic was and knew where they set off, and so they could predict with some degree of accuracy where they were. But generally speaking, Jonah was in the middle of the sea, and of all the places, there is that whale to come and to rescue him. It cannot be a random act. It has to be the superintending of God in providence. And Jonah here is saved by God's mercy and by his grace. And so when we think about how this might apply to us, if we have been saved, it is because the Lord has come on a rescue mission, on a rescue plan to save us individually. It is not the case that we happen to be in the right place at the right time. Some kind of coincidence, some kind of chance or luck that played a part in our deliverance. No, God sent this whale, this great fish, in order to swallow up Jonah, in order that he might be saved. And he spends three days and three nights in that fish. And we discover that Jonah says, in verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah would be eventually delivered. He would be vomited back up onto the sea. He would go to Nineveh. He'd go and preach to the people there. That city would repent and turn to God. And we would see there in a great way in which God had mercy to these people. But we're thinking about this amazing grace. If you're a Christian this morning, then you have been saved with the gracious hand of God. It's all of grace. If you've been saved, then it's because God has been uh, surprising in your life that he has intervened with something so precious, his own son. What he's provided is suitable for your salvation, and it's specific for your salvation. And you can rejoice in your God as to what he has done for you. But if you are not saved then just see where sin takes you. See like Jonah, it takes you away from God and then down and down and down. And the only outcome will be, unless you are saved, in death itself. Well, may the Lord apply his word to our hearts and may each of us be able to say personally,